Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. I am, um, I, I've, I've thought about it, prayed about it, and uh, I really feel strongly that I want to pick up where I left off a couple weeks ago. I have to uh, tell you before I start that this topic, this subject matter, is something that I've dealt with for more than 40 years. From the beginning of my ministry, these were questions that accosted every saint, every Christian, by Satan himself. The accuser of the brethren, he came into the field of faith and tried to sow doubt and discord. And one of the ways he does it is by the experiences that we go through. And so this topic of why do bad things happen to good people or the question of why is something that every new convert all the way to the seasoned veteran will face over and over again in his life. We talked about last week about Jesus on the cross, he himself asking the question why. Even though previously, just a week earlier, he had told his, his uh, disciples why he was going to experience the things that he was going to experience. He was going to be uh, killed and die and raise up in three days. So, but when he was on the cross, he said, why God, why? I, let's put it in Hebrew, Eli, Eli, Lama, Shachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, just to rehearse what I said last week, he knew, but I believe that the reason that question was asked was to show his followers there are going to be times in their life when they're on their cross. And even though they've had strong faith and lived for God all their life, the question may arise in their mind, why has this been allowed to happen to me? And if the Lamb of God was rejected, beaten, suffered, and died, we who follow after him in like manner will go through similar experiences. And Satan will use the why against you. He'll try to quench your faith. Now, I, this is really hard for me to do because I'm kind of old-fashioned. Um, actually started preaching in 1978, had our first church in 1980, and always under the example of anointed preaching was spontaneous. It, it came and it just flowed from you. But what I want to do tonight, you need to understand, these are my words I, the, the words that are on the paper that I'm reading to you tonight, I had prayed about and I wrote them as God gave them to me. So they're, they're not, I'm not reading from a textbook. I'm reading words that God gave to me as I sat and studied this topic and prayed about it. And so I'm going to read some of the things I've written and then I'm going to expound on them as well and maybe show you some things that you may not have considered. Because every one of you in this room has already gone through trials and asked the question, why? And where is God in my suffering? Why, God, are some healed and it seems some are neglected? If God is no respecter of persons, how do I justify that verse by what I see? These are all questions that we need to look at. 
But as we get into this topic, you're going to find out the trials of our life are the things that help us to grow spiritually and produce fruit that not only blesses ourselves, but those that are around us. So this isn't a negative topic, it's a very positive topic. When I um, started to think on this topic about, well, I mentioned 40 years ago, but about 10 years ago, I, I still hadn't really felt really good about any of the conclusions that I came to on the topic. You know, I, I'm working from hospital to hospital, cancer center to cancer center. I'm watching people die uh, through my hospice care. I'm watching suffering, and I, I'm watching good people suffer. I'm watching people in the church, and I could name... Many people that sat in this congregation that have, have passed away, and I watched them as they made their journey to that place of departure. And they were faithful, and they grew in God. But I, I could not come to a decisive answer. One day as I was reading my Bible, um, I came to 2 Timothy 4, verse 7 and 8. And I, we've, I've read this a number of times, but this time there were five words that stood out of the scripture like they were underlined. And, it, I, and I felt like God wanted me to look at those five words and consider what they could possibly mean. Paul is writing a letter to his son in the Lord, Timothy. Paul knows that he's about to die. This is his last letter, one of the last letters he writes to the one that he loves. And he He's, he knows he's departing. He knows that Timothy's going to grieve his leaving. So this is a very important letter for him. And he writes these words from a Roman prison before he was beheaded. I have fought a good fight. And there's, this, these are the words that jumped out at me. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. I have finished my course. And verse 8 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. But notice the word henceforth. Because I have fought the fight, because I have endured to the end and been faithful because of that, henceforth, that means because of that, there is a, a crown laid up for me, and not for me only, but to all those that endure the things that God sends into their love, their life, in a victorious Christian-like manner. I looked at the word course. I said, what is it, Lord, about those five verses? And of course, I let my, of course, get that, of course, I let my mind and imagination go. I saw golf courses. Now, most people that know me don't want to golf with me because I'm a terrible golfer. And so I'm talking about a subject I'm not really qualified to talk about, but it, there's an example here. I saw nine mini golf. I saw nine hole golf courses. 
I saw 18-hole golf courses. I saw professional courses, which were extremely difficult, like ones out in Kohler, and others that were just so very short and so very simple. And that's when I begin to see the meaning of the verse. Everyone that is born into this world is assigned by God his own course to follow. Thus, the scripture that says, do not compare yourselves among yourselves because your course is not the course of the person that's sitting next to you. Some courses that are given out to people are short and some of those are long and some of those are very difficult and others are very easy. But the better players always work the most difficult courses. They didn't start playing over in Kohler. I'm trying to think of the name of the golf course there. They didn't start playing there just when they were amateurs. They became skilled through playing and experiencing the game. In a sense, they graduated from one course to another. And think about it in your life. The things that you're going to go through, they're always going to go on graduation. In other words, when we went to school, I started out in first grade. I learned to write. I learned to do arithmetic. But by the time I was in 10th grade, we were learning business math and all sorts of other things. They got progressively harder. But I wouldn't have got to 11th grade unless I would have went through uh, first through a 10. And in our life, God progressively allows us to experience different things as we're able to handle them. God, rest assured though, God will not give you something more than you can handle. He knows what you're able to take. Well, when you've completed the last hole, so to speak, the game's over. No one knows when the last hole's coming up, but rest assured, as Paul said, you also will finish your course. Now, I looked at it in a different way as well. I realized that I'm not going anywhere until I've played the last hole. I don't know when the last hole is. I don't know where I am on my course. But God put us here for a reason and a purpose. And I must complete the purpose. Now, I look at my brother, Rick, and you, Pastor Rick. We were both born, believe it or not, from the same father and mother. Our lives outside of being the same in Christ were really, really radically different in other areas. <laughs> you should have seen us when we were kids. We were different, oil and water. Um, I used to say, God, why must I battle all of the physical afflictions and the diseases that have come into my life. And I could name out a list, but that's not why I'm here. They were like summer storms. One thing followed another all through my life, from brain tumors to, to lung situations and sarcoidosis and colitis and one after another. They were summer storms. I'd get done with one and another would blow up. And I would look at my brother, and he was just healthy as a storm, or not a storm, healthy as a horse. And I would, I would sometimes pray, especially with the colitis, ulcerative colitis. 
uh, I had that for years, many years. I'm in remission now. I would say, God, why cannot I be like others who seem to have a normal and non-eventful life when it comes to health? Others, I, I would be angry sometimes at God because I could see people doing things that I could not dream of doing. To get on a bus, to be with a group of people with my colitis, I was so afraid to even be away from a, a bathroom and things like that. To, the major victory to me was when I got on a plane and I went into basic training. I said, God, I don't know how I'm going to handle this, but I am tired of living under the thumb of oppression. Something's going to have to happen. I used to tease him. Well, actually, I still tease him. Can I tell you something just to break this up a little bit? You know what I did to him the other day? Did I tell you last week? I called him on the phone, and you'll remember this, because at his last service, before he took some time off, they were talking about how organized he was. I got on his desk. I'm sitting at his desk, and I called him on the phone, and I said, Rick, I, I just want to let you know I'm sitting at your desk right now. And there are coffee cups upside down and stains on your desk. Your drawers are pulled out and your stuff is hanging out of your drawers. And your chairs are all turned cockeyed. And, but I just wanted to let you know everything is fine. And you know I'm a tease. But I, I said that because I knew it would bother him. Because, and you know what he called me? And he, he said I came to church and made sure. But... Just a light moment. I, I tease him and ask him if, if something happened when mom was pregnant with me. Did, was she taking drugs or was something going on? I don't know why I ended up this way. But now it is, here in the year 2019, I clearly see the reason why. I see why God sent me all those trials because he was making it possible for me to do a ministry that he was calling me to do. He was giving me a bigger heart of empathy and compassion for suffering. And now I look back and I say, well, thank you, Lord, for those things because now I understand why they happen. Remember Romans 8 and 28. Paul wrote these words. He said, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are called according to his purpose. I have to point out to you that the word purpose at the end of the verse is preceded by the word his and not the word yours. You need to understand that everything that happens in your life isn't for your purpose. It's not for necessarily your profit. You are experiencing the things that you experience in your life if you are a child of God for his purpose. And his purpose is to build a church. His purpose is to gather a bride and preach the gospel and bring people to heaven. And God has a purpose for your life. And you have to get that drilled in your subconscious. You have a purpose for being here. You were designed to fit into the picture that God was painting, not a picture that you were designing. 
And I want you to rest assured, God has a special, very special place for you you and his plan. And I'll qualify that statement by saying this, it may not be the one you would normally choose. It wouldn't be one, maybe one that you wouldn't have chose yourself. But it will be the one that is best for the collective purpose of the church. And that's what it's all about. In Jeremiah, the 29th chapter, let me see if I can bring that up real quick. Jeremiah 21, for I know the thoughts, is it on the screen there? For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. In other words, God has plans for you. And he has a purpose for your life. Now going on to James the fifth chapter, verse 10 and 11. James write these words. He says, take my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering and affliction and of patience. Why is he writing that? I, want, I don't want to read this too fast. Take my brethren, he says, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord. Those are your predecessors. Those are those that went before you. And then he says, take them for an example. Look at them. Look at their suffering, affliction, but also look at their patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job, and you have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. So James is actually telling us, look at the examples of those that have preceded us on our trail toward heaven on this mission. Let me give you a word picture. You know how I like to play with words. I want to paint a painting for you tonight. And I want, I want you to, in your mind, I want you to see this picture. It may be a picture that you've had in your own life. Picture the wind stirring the trees outside your window. The fragrance of the blossoms that grow in abundance on its branches provide a feast of fragrance to Job as he stirs on this very lovely sunny morning. He breathes, it's a wonderful time to be alive. He whispers to no one in particular. He goes about the morning task as he prepares to embrace the events of the day. Job's wife smiles to herself as she hears him whistling outside their dwelling. Job is such an optimist. She muses to no one in particular, always grateful for the many blessings that others would not so readily notice. His seven sons and his three wonderful daughters are the diamonds of his life, each one of them holding a very special place in his heart. Job is very well respected in the land of Uz, and many seek his counsel. Little does Job realize that today would be the day that would change the course of his entire life. Today he would face the peaks of blessings and then be cast down into the depths of despair 
and suffering. I stand amazed each time I pick up this wonderful book we call the Bible. For each time I thumb through its pages, it reaches out to me and reveals its hidden secrets. The writing of this book book make me think and expand my view of this great cosmos that surrounds us. Each book points to the awesomeness of God and his love for humanity. However, there are special times when I read that I find myself standing next to the person that I'm reading about on the page. On this day, on this particular day, I find myself standing next to a man named Job. Again, he's a greatly respected man when we first meet him. He certainly is a scholar, very wise, enlightened to the realm of God's reign. He's very humble, and he's very connected to his family. His heart is attached to each of his children and grandchildren, if he has them. I can't remember if he had grandchildren. He loves to watch them laugh and grow, and how proud a papa he is. Of course, as most children, they have their challenges and make, at times, questionable, if not really bad decisions. However, Job has patience with each of his children. As a good father, he surrounds each of his family every day with a wall of prayer, asking God to protect and forgive each for any action that they may have taken contrary to the will of God, just like you with your family. He prayed every day for their protection and for their forgiveness for anything that might have separated them from God. In the scope of Scripture, Job fits into a divine format of growth. Notice this. The book of Job shows us how to suffer. Just as the book of Psalms teaches us how to pray. In like manner, the book of Proverbs tells us how to act and the book of Ecclesiastes how to enjoy and the songs of Solomon how to love. Each of these aspects strengthens the spiritual character of a man and of a woman. Now, the purpose of this book that I'm writing, this is the, this is the purpose. The purpose of this book is to focus on an age-old question Why does God allow the righteous to suffer? This is certainly the proverbial question of the ages. That is certainly the question Job raises. But it is worthy to note that Job himself never receives a direct answer, if even an indirect one, for that matter, to his question. Nor would I try to give you a direct answer as to why God does the things that he does. Satan provides a challenge. Does Job fear God for nothing? I repeat the same question for your consideration. Does man fear God for nothing? The scripture allows us to be privy to the challenge of Satan. And that's, it's there for a reason. Because the same thing is being repeated over and over again. This question is asked in heaven. 
we are also made aware that God allows Job to suffer in answer to that challenge. Think about it. Does Job fear God for nothing? It was a challenge. We are also made aware that God allows Job to suffer in answer to the challenge that Satan made. But Job is never told this. He has no idea what's taking place in heaven. Therefore, may I suggest a possible purpose for this book? Think about what I'm going to say next. I thought it came out really well. The question would be, how should the righteous suffer? How should the righteous suffer? Not, why do the righteous suffer? How do I endure hardship? Not, why do I endure hardship? The true measure of a Christian, man or woman, is culminated in the way he handles adversity and suffering. Anyone he can handle is blessing. But really, what defines your character is how you handle adversity. Well, <clears throat> Job's life certainly doesn't go unnoticed in heaven. For Job's integrity and compassion and faithfulness shines like a lighthouse amidst the darkness of man's depravity. And don't you think for a moment down here on earth in the year 2019 in this country, this great country of the United States, that your light goes unnoticed by Satan either. To say that God loved Job would be an understatement. God enjoys each moment that he walks by the side of this earthly human friend whom he calls Job, just like he enjoys every precious moment that he spends with you throughout the day. He certainly, he certainly feels the integrity that follows each decision that he makes. Now, I know you guys, fathers won't relate to this, but papas love to brag about their children. And in this case, God cannot refrain as he points Job out to a very dubious character called Satan. <clears throat> it seems to me that when we look at the Bible, heaven is the epicenter of God's existence. It's sort of like the White House of the galaxies, and every sta everything stands under its authority. Satan is the epitome of evil, and why God would showcase Job in front, in front of such a character at first is not, I couldn't understand why. Why would he do that? Don't think for a moment that Satan has not already been watching Job himself. He, Job knew, or Satan knew Job very well. He hovered around that home of Job and his family like a wolf looking at the chicken coop. He knew about Job, but Satan points him out. He hates Job nearly as much as he hates God. And I want you to know this tonight, that Satan hates you almost as much as he hates God because you're a representation of his image. Nobody makes a friend with evil, with Satan. He hates them. He taunts him each time he gets, he gets but Satan points out to God at their interview in heaven that God withholds him from touching him or causing him any harm. That's an interesting thought. Up to this point, 
God's been protecting Job, hasn't he? He's put a hedge around him. But now God's going to do something he has not done previously. He's going to remove the hedge. To Satan, how frustrating and aggravating it has been as he explains, it's like muzzling a fox and letting him into the hen house. God smiles to Satan, for he certainly must enjoy his frustration. For he, at, for, for he at one time had shared God's attention and honor. Satan at one time occupied the place that Job filled now. Of course, Job, Satan's problem was he could not hold on to humility. And he was swept into the curtain of self-glorification with a lot of different ripples of pride. And that you can always tell where Satan's been. You can always see the evidences of pride and self-glorification getting man to focus on his own self and not on God. That pride now in Satan was bubbling up as he watched Job's creator boast about the one who walked with God with a humble spirit and a love for his creator as he had once done. Look at the scripture where God speaks to Satan about Job. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. As I, th I looked at this, I stopped again and I said, God is setting up the trial. God is initiating the trial with Job. He's pointing him out. He's antagonizing Satan. He's setting up something to happen in Job's life. Of course, God had asked a question that he knew the answer to. Job was a thorn in Satan's side. Job was a beacon of light that revealed his own failures. However, I asked the question, why is it that it seems that God is firing up Satan? It's like jamming a sleeping bear or stepping on the tail of a cat. Why is God focusing Satan on Job? Satan is telling God that Job is only a faithful servant because of the blessings and protection that he supplies. And he said that about you too. He's saying that you're sitting in this church tonight to God only because of the blessings that you get. You're only here because of the prosperity, the nice home that you have, the health that you have, the family. But he's telling God, you know, if you were to take that away from those people in that church, they'd curse you to your face. They'd walk out the back door, slam it behind them, and they'd not have nothing to do with you ever again. Do you think that you're different than Job? Do you think that your life is more precious and devout than Job's life? No. If God has no respect for persons, is it possible that what God allowed in Job's life, he allows in your life. All these things were written for our admonition. That's what the Bible says. And as we started this lesson tonight, it says, remember the, those that went before you. Remember the, the, the children of God. It's then that God does something so profound and outside the walls of man's spiritual reasoning. It's hard to understand. He begins to tear down the hedge that has protected Job. God is allowing evil 
to not only linger outside the perimeter of Job's life, but to touch it. That's in our Bible. That's taking place. Let me go on and read a little bit more from Job. I'm going to read a few more verses. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, verse 1 of Job 1 of 1. And that man was blameless and upright, upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him, and his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And so it was when the day of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came up among them. And the Lord said um, to Satan, from from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does God, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, with his possessions have increased in the land. But now, here's the challenge. Now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. I ask this question of not only of myself, but everyone who has committed their lives to God. To the generation that calls out the church of God should not be afflicted, tormented, and assaulted by evil. Let me read that again, because I don't know if you caught it. I'm talking to a generation that is saying that the church of God should never see affliction. The church of God should never be tormented or assaulted by evil. I would ask you what evidence you would present that the church of God has never been assaulted. I'd like you to go back to the book of Acts, and I'd like you to go back to Rome and to Caesar's household. And I'd like you to make that claim. What's happened to our country and to the church that we live in in this day and age is we are like the church of Laodicea, that it says we are increased in riches and goods. Everything is just wonderful. But what has happened is the church has become lukewarm and arrogant and self-justifying in its existence. And you know how to solve that? I remember when we were younger, in the spring, Mom used to give us castrol. I, you never did that. I don't know where, she read it in a book. And it was terrible stuff. But if you want to get the church renewed, 
You want to get the church praying? You want to get your people to church on Sunday morning? Bring an assault. Bring something into their lives that causes them to cry out to God and pray because it drives the luxuries of the world away. Some believe that as a Christian, there will always be prosperity, protection, and blessing. And if for some reason these things flee, and notice this, then this is what I feel so strongly about this, because I've seen it over and over again, that if those things flee, you have somehow missed the will of God or sinned against him because that's who we are and that is what we should receive. Yes. Remember the friends of Job? How they came to pick his bones? What have you done, you terrible guy? We're in the, the blessed generation. If you're suffering financially, you, you must have stole from God. Now, I believe in tithing and offering, but sometimes Satan comes against you and say, you better check your checkbook. Something happened there. You're probably missing something in your life that's causing this to happen. And I say, not always. I want you to rejoice in those facts, in, in your trial, knowing that if you've done things the way that God has directed you to, that God has allowed you to be something of a light to shine in the world of darkness, to hold up in Satan's face and say, this is an example of my body. This is an example of my spirit in human flesh. And you begin to shine. You know, I can, I can take a candle right now and I can light it and hold it up and you probably wouldn't even notice a difference. But if I bring the darkness of adversity into this room and I shut off all the lights, you'll still be able to function by one candle. And that's what we've become. We are the light of the world. As we continue, we will find Job's friends confronting Job and using these three principles of prosperity and protection through one's actions to justify a life without hardship and continual blessing. It's your fault, Job. You're suffering because of what you have secretly done that has offended God. What is the devil called in the Bible? He's called the accuser of the brethren. If we're smart, we'll get the gift of discernment and we'll be able to recognize the voice that's speaking. That's not God. That's Satan's voice. And that's where we stand up and say, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> Have you ever done that and you weren't paying attention and somebody heard you? I sometimes, they, now they just think I'm senile and I'm just talking to myself. But you need to address it exactly when it happens. You ever have a thought come into your mind and you say, how could I ever think a thought like that? You know what you do? Not inside your mind. You don't say in your mind, get out of my mind. You say it with your mouth. I reject that thought and I send it forth from my mind in Jesus' name because I recognize that the thought was placed there by an enemy. But Satan would say, that's, your, that's you. You're a really bad guy. Look at the thought you just had. And he put the thought in your mind. It's possible that Job is a type of the church. 
and that God points the body of believers out to Satan. And Satan, in the same sense, replies that your church only serves you for the benefits and protection you supply. Now, as we explore the book of Job, uh, place yourself in Job's place. Feel the initial surprise as you lose all of your security, all of your wealth, and then you watch your children depart this earth, the ones you so dearly love. The question we may ask is, if God is a loving God and has the power to protect and provide and prosper those he loves, and he does not do it, could it be a reflection of some defect in his character that denotes a lesser love than our own? I think I really thought carefully how I worded that. Because that's the question that's presented through atheism against Christianity. If I treat others better than God treats them, how can God be above me in integrity? Now, let me go on. I'm not going to stop there by any means. Man is very good at making God into their own image. We like to do that. But we're created in his image. He's not created in our image. However, you cannot put God into a mold and reshape him. For what mold could you ever make that could contain him? What knowledge that we possess is able to discern the depths of his character and understanding? Think about that. What knowledge could we ever possess collectively that would even be able to scratch the surface of his character and understanding? Now, when we look at the book of Job, it's one of the oldest writings in the Bible. I believe God, from the very beginning, beginning wanted those who walked with him to not solely put their trust in life circumstances. Don't put your trust in God through the circumstances that are going on in your life. For the situations of life change from moment to moment. They're variable. God is reaching out to you and I and wanting each of us to see the greater picture. You know, when I, I read the book of Job, I, and I've read it many times, I would say to myself, it's like watching a train run off the tracks and each car tumbling down the embankment one after the other after the other with no way to stop it. You become as a spectator helplessly watching the calamity as it continues till the last car joins the carnage. I feel that atheists use this example the most in theorizing the non-existence of God. If God was good, why would he allow evil to continue? Have you ever heard that? All the time. I believe the answer lies in the book of Job. 
Now, I consider myself uh, somewhat of a loving father. I, my son is here, so I have to be very careful because he knows me better and, uh, than anybody else. But I like to think that I'm a loving father. I would do anything to help my kids if they were suffering, just like you would. If they were in pain, I would do everything within my power to help the pain go away. Let me ask you a question. Am I a better father than my heavenly father? Come on, don't look at me that way. Satan's put that in your, your mind already. That's why we have to address it. Because those things undealt with breed unbelief. I look at my own dad. Dad was always watching out for me. And this, this will probably help Jason understand a little bit of why I am what I am. But my dad was always watching out for me. Whether it would be a physical illness or emotional struggle, he was always there to support me. Oftentimes, he could not take the pain or heal the hurt but his presence provided the support for me to face the challenge. Just his being there. Some time ago I requested, and some of you have heard this, but just let me read it. Uh, Some may not have heard it. Some time ago I requested my military records. I remember opening up the manila envelope and looking at the information that was sent. It was then I found a letter that was enclosed in these records, which were sent back to me addressed to my commanding officer. It was a letter it, that read this way briefly. It said, and I'm, I'm just taking an excerpt from it, please watch over my son. I, I look back now and realize that there were probably many times he had went behind the scenes to look out for me that I wasn't even aware of. I, I had no idea that he did that. I remember how I would get upset with him, and I did. I would get mad at him. When I needed financial help, and even though he could have relieved my burden, especially in college, he wouldn't help. Not a dime. I look back all these years now, and I I thank him for refraining from my many, I call it petitions, but it was begging. Might as well call it the word that it was. The greatest gift that he ever gave me was the gift of confidence and endurance to be able to be self-sufficient and show myself that I could do it on my own with God's help. He provided with me a work ethic that has allowed me to go on and when everything around me was trying to persuade me to quit, those principles that he taught me as I grew up Help me to continue on. I wonder how Job would have felt if he could have been privy to the conversation that took place in heaven. If he could have heard the conversation between Job, I mean, between Satan and God. But to Job, it's just another day like any other. But hell's doors are about to open, and an army of demons are going to swarm around this placid picture. And you don't know what tomorrow holds. I'm not trying to be negative. Tomorrow could be a full day full of sunshine and blessings, but tomorrow could be a challenge as well. Can you see Job as the first servant shares the news? Verse 14. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided them and they took them away. 
Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Satan used others in his attack. He used the Sabians. We know that this was initiated by Satan. God will use people in your life to attack you. Master, it was a day like any other. The fields were being worked and all was peaceful when the enemy came. They're gone. All's lost. The unexpectedness of this tragedy is the most difficult loss. He, he was not prepared for it. We often do not get to choose the time of our testing. Otherwise, we'd prepare for it. The torrents of pain and struggle fall upon us without mercy as we fall to our knees and look to heaven for answers. Not just answers, but for hope. Satan always will allow at least one to survive to bring the news of devastation. You will never have to worry about the news agencies going bankrupt. CNN, NBC, ABC, there will always be one of them left because he wants always to bring bad news to you. And what is, it's like striking concrete. Your life is like concrete, every blow. And then you start, if you're not careful, to break from the inside out, not even knowing that your life is starting to crumble from the inside. Satan's salt on Job was precisely planned. And it was planned in such a way, and get this, that Job never had a time to regenerate. You know, if you get one piece of bad news and you've got a week to, to digest it and, and to regenerate, but Satan's attack was very precisely planned that he never had a time to recover. And sometimes in your life, Satan will attack you in the very same way, one thing after another. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. This is different. Because now nature's part of the deal. Up to this point, he's using people. But now Satan is actually using nature. Now, the wise, astute Christian will say, well, now we know that it's, that it's God because it's coming from, from Mother Nature or from around you. Not so. Not so at all. This cannot be coincidence, Job thinks to himself. Like all of us, Job goes to the source of his meaning, to the core of his existence for reasoning. And this is where we can relate. God must be doing this to me. Satan wants Job to think this way. He wants you to think that way. For if he can destroy Job's view of God's compassion... And that's what Satan is trying to do in your life at the, when he does that. Of God's compassion and love, he can break him away from his loyalty and faithfulness. See how one affects the other? 
If you lose track of God's compassion and love, you're going to lose loyalty. You're going to lose your faith. He feels he can actually take away his reason for existence and his will to continue to live. Remember, all these things happened in a very short period of time. I think I'm going I'm to close because I think this is a good place to stop. But let me tell you one thing I learned. We went to, um, on a trip a few weeks ago, and we were in Montana, and we were listening to the news. And um, the news broadcaster came on, and he said that in Montana, they, ser- they, they have a very notorious suicide rate. You wouldn't think this, but in the nation of the United States, of course, Montana has the highest suicide rate for teenagers. Two out of every ten children in high school will commit suicide. Two out of ten. Now, if you've ever been to Montana, it's not like California or New York City. There's nothing. You can drive for miles and there's just nothing there. Why would people take their life? People, especially in a place where there would, there's not a lot of cities, they lose purpose. They lose vision. They lose a reason for existence. Satan wants to steal your hope. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to steal your faith. And if he can get you to question God's compassion and love for you, he can get access to the vault of your heart. And I think, I really feel strongly that this is a message that God wants me to preach right now because this world is getting ready to go into great tribulation and the period of peace and blessing and prosperity isn't going to last forever. And we've got to be ready to stand tall because we're going to be the lights that shine in the darkness in this generation. All right, let's stand together. Can I ask you a question? It's just us. Have you ever been driving your car? Have you ever been overwhelmed? Something's happening in your life. And you say, Lord, I'd like to say something, but no, I shouldn't say it. I'm afraid to say it, Lord. And then in my mind, what happens is God says to me, don't you think I know what's in your heart already? I want you to say it. I want you to say it, Steve. And I said, God, if I'm out of line, please forgive me, but I have to say it. Why? Why is this happening? Why are you allowing this to go on? But as I begin to pray that way, and it'll happen to you, the transition is, God says, I understand. And then he's like my dad. And he says, are you all done now? Are y'all done complaining? Do you feel better? Did you get it out? I'm still on the throne. I haven't changed. I'm still in charge. I want you to get up, put on your big boy pants, and I want you to go on because you don't see it now, but in my infinite wisdom, I am preparing you 
for a specific role in life, but you'll never be able to fill it without the experience that you're going through now. So what are you saying, Brother Kylie? I'm saying when these things happen, rejoice because there's a purification and a renewing and God is about to do something in you and for you that affects not just your life, but others. And maybe that's why I'm here. I'm really happy with the ministry that I've got. When Brother Cordell asked me, he says, how would you like to be the family life pastor? I saw a family life pastor as the pastor that deals with the issues of life. Because I certainly saw the downside of life, but now I also see the upside. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, I know it may be some in this room tonight that are going through a situation that need to hear this, but it may be somebody that's going to listen to this online, Lord. And I want to tell you, whoever you are, and whatever you're going through at this very moment, that God is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And I want you to reach out your arms to him. He's going to pick you up as a child is picked up by his father. And he's going to hold you close to his breast. But then he's going to put you down and he's going to say, Son, you have to learn to walk before you can run. And yes, you may fall down and you may scrape your knees. But one day you'll walk tall and strong. But I will never leave your side. I'll be always there for you. God is so merciful and kind. Lord Jesus, I thank you for what you've done tonight. I pray that your blessing would go with us as we, we prepare to go out into the world. I ask these things in Jesus' name. This altar is open if you'd like to come and pray. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.